Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and join me in a moment as we will read from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 2. You've got your four Gospels, you've got your history book of the New Testament, Acts, and then you get to Paul's longest letter, which is Romans, and then First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians, and finally, you end up at Ephesians chapter 2. We have been looking at some of the four fragile freedoms that Baptists have historically embraced. Two weeks ago, uh, we looked at Bible freedom. And last Sunday, in my absence, Amy Andrews explored with you soul freedom. And this morning, we're going to look at church freedom. And next Sunday, we'll, as we approach our nation's uh, birthday, we will look at religious freedom. So turn to Ephesians chapter 2, but hold your place for a few moments. And let me begin this morning with a story. Go with me to a little Texas town where there's this tree-lined uh, tree street. And on that street, there are a there is a Presbyterian church, there is a Methodist church, and there is a Baptist church. And all three of those churches are dealing with a major problem. They have squirrels in the attic. A squirrel nuisance. And all three are trying to figure out what to do about the squirrels because the squirrels are eating the insulation they are chewing up the electrical wiring. The Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Baptists have a big problem to solve. So the Presbyterians jump on the problem first. And they convene a meeting of their elders. And they begin to discuss the situation. And then one elder points out that these squirrels in the attic and all of the nuisance that they are causing all of the damage that's occurring is preordained according to Presbyterian theology and so therefore it has been determined from the beginning of time that the squirrels would be up in the attic and from a theological perspective there is nothing they can do. So then the Methodists meet and they decide what they're going to do about the squirrels and in a meeting a little old long-time Methodist lady stands up and she pleads with the church to deal with the squirrels in the spirit of the founder of the Methodist church, John Wesley. So they place some traps up in the attic and sure enough they catch all of the squirrels, they take them out to the edge of town and they release them, but by the next morning the squirrels are back up in the attic of the Methodist church. Well, as is the case typically, the Baptists are the last ones to take action on the problem that is occurring in the community of this infestation of the squirrels in the attic. And so they call a congregational meeting, and after a long and, and involved meeting in which many people stand up to speak their mind, the Baptists finally vote and decide to vote the squirrels into the membership of that Baptist church. 
And now the squirrels only come around on Palm Sunday and Easter and Christmas. Somebody say, hallelujah. Well, you know, churches sure do things differently, don't they? Based on their congregational way of government or what we would call polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y. Congregational polity. If you have the Episcopal polity, then the authority of the congregation is usually placed in the hands of one person. Often it's typically the bishop who makes the final call about things. If you have a Presbyterian form of government or Presbyterian polity, then decisions are made and authority is placed in the hands of a small group of people, often a group that might be called the elders. But if you have congregational polity, which is what we Baptists have, then the final authority and the freedom to make decisions is placed in the hands of all of the people. It's placed in the hands of the entire congregation. Walter Sheridan has written a book entitled The Baptist Identity, Four Fragile Freedoms, from which this sermon series, that title is borrowed. And I want to put on the screen this morning how Walter Sheridan defines congregational or church freedom. Walter Sheridan writes, church freedom is the historic Baptist affirmation that local churches are free under the Lordship of Christ. Now we're just not free to do anything we want to based on our own whims or desires because this is not our church, you understand, it's God's church. So everything we do, hopefully we do it under the Lordship of Christ. We're free under the Lordship of Christ to determine their membership and leadership, to order their worship and work, to ordain whom they perceive as gifted for ministry, male or female, and to participate in the larger body of Christ of whose unity and mission Baptists are proudly a part. Thank you for putting that on the screen. Now, as I think about what Walter Sheridan wrote about how church freedom gives us the opportunity under the Lordship of Christ to order our worship and our work and our ministry, I think about my little home church that I grew up in in Raleigh. I think about our church here at Oakmont in Greenville, and I think we fit that definition of church freedom exactly. My little church in Raleigh, we ordered our worship in the way that we wanted to order our worship each Sunday, just like we do here at Oakmont. And frankly, that order varied little, if any. The choir would stand every Sunday morning to sing, the Lord is in his temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. That's what the choir sang. And then the pastor would offer a prayer. And then we'd stand to sing a hymn. And then the pastor would stand again and he would offer the morning prayer. And then we'd stand again and sing the second hymn. And on the second hymn, the ushers would come down and the pastor would say the prayer over the offering. The ushers would disperse, take up the offering, and then they'd come back down the center aisle again while we sang every Sunday the doxology, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Then the choir would stand again and they'd sing the anthem before the pastor preached. And then the pastor would give the invitation 
And then we'd sing the invitational hymn and following the invitation, if there were any decisions made, he'd share them. And then as he was walking down the aisle, he'd hold his hand up and he would pronounce the benediction on the congregation and stand at the only rear door in that little sanctuary. If you wanted to get out, you had to come by him and speak to the pastor. And then if you were a man, you went outside and stood under one of the large pine trees in a circle and smoked a cigarette. If you were one of the ladies, you got in a circle and you talked about the latest recipe or what was growing in the garden. If you were a kid like me, you ran around the churchyard until your parents corralled you and took you home. That's how worship happened every Sunday in my home church without fail. No variation whatsoever. In my little home church, just like here at Oakmont, we called our own pastors and staff. We determined our own faith and practice and programming. We usually had a week of revival. We had two weeks of vacation Bible school in the morning, Monday through Friday from 9 to 12. Every year I was a kid growing up. My mother was a vacation Bible school director for a lot of years. Two weeks of vacation Bible school. We had quarterly business meetings in which you could be guaranteed to see the best fireworks in town. I'll never forget the time that we had a congregational business meeting and it kicked up so much steam and discord and people were upset and angry with each other. You know what the issue was? They were voting on whether to allow the pastor to leave the church-owned parsonage to buy his own home. That's what they were fighting and feuding over. And that was the first time as a kid that I remembered feeling the spirit of evil and of Satan in my little home church. But we were free to argue and fight and feud over the most minor of things if we wanted to because we were Baptists. You see, we believed in what's called the priesthood of the believer. That Protestant Reformation doctrine that everybody is his or her own priest. You don't have to go through your pastor. You don't have to go through your deacon or your Sunday school teacher or your parents, anybody else, any religious authority to have a relationship with God. And you open up the Bible and read it and interpret it for yourself. That's what Bible freedom and soul freedom is all about. And our little home church, just like here at Oakmont, we believed in the autonomy of the local church which means every church is autonomous. It's free to make its own decisions, as Walter Sheridan wrote, under the lordship of Christ. There is no religious hierarchy above the local church. No Baptist group speaks for another Baptist group. So that year, years ago, when I first entered full-time ministry and was actually a young minister here at Oakmont when the Southern Baptist Convention voted in an annual meeting in June in a resolution to condemn tobacco growers and smoking. How do you think the tobacco farmers in eastern North Carolina felt about that resolution? Do you not think that they felt free to thumb their noses at the resolution passed at the Southern Baptist Convention that in part was threatening their own livelihood. See, one Baptist group doesn't speak for another. And so that's the type of world that 
we have lived in as Baptists for 400 plus years. But you know, the landscape is changing and shifting a little bit today. People do not value their denominational loyalties nor their church loyalties as they once did, even, I would say, five to ten years ago. I mean, people don't care if they're Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian or Lutheran or non-denominational. And they don't really care in some ways what church they align with as long as have you met my needs today? It doesn't matter what you did for me yesterday. Have you met my needs today? We live in a, as Dallas Willard calls it, a consumer Christian culture, which is why it's not unusual through the years for me to hear people at the door coming out saying, we're visiting today, we're just shopping around. So you see, the landscape has changed. Years ago, the Baptist girl in North Carolina married the Baptist boy and they might live in the same town after they got married for the rest of their life and or if they moved to another town within weeks they had visited the local Baptist church and had joined it they didn't mess around now things have changed now the Baptist girl from Texas goes to college in Virginia and she meets a boy from Connecticut who's Episcopalian. And they graduate and they get jobs in Chicago and they move and they compromise by going to the Methodist church and will attend that church maybe for the rest of their life if they stay in Chicago, a church they will never join. That's how the landscape has shifted. But you know, for Baptists, we've always said that following and belonging to Jesus means that we belong to the church universal, the church with big C, but we also belong to the family of faith with the local church, church with little c. I want to put some, um, some images and descriptions of the church from the Bible on the screen for you for a moment, and then we're going to come to this Ephesians chapter 2 passage. The Bible has a lot of biblical images for the church. One is out of 1 Peter 2.9, where the writer describes us, the church, as God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are a people belonging to God. That's one image. We're, we're God's people. Another image is the bride of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus is the groom. He's the husband, and we are his bride. We are the wife, the spouse, and he loves us, and he gave his life for us. The church is the bride of Christ. Then yeah, that's fine. Next, the body of Christ. If you look in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, the church will be described as a body, that, that all of us have different parts. We're not all hands, feet ears, eyes, arms, whatever, hands. We all have different parts, different roles, different gifts, and therefore different ways that God uses us for service. We are his body. Another image is that we are the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, we are the temple of God. God dwells in us just as he dwelled in that temple in Jerusalem back in the days when the Jewish people 
were worshiping him there. But then we get to this last image. So now take your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, and let, let's see how Paul in Ephesians really puts a lot of these images in these short few verses. Paul writes, verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. See, there's that image that we're God's people. And members of God's household. Now we've got a second image here of the family. We're part of the family of faith. And we often talk about this being the Oakmont Church family. We're members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now we're, we're getting an image of a building or, or of a dwelling. And we pick that up in verse 21. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. There's that image of the temple again. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So we have a lot of these images here in Ephesians chapter 2 that really summarize the other images that we've already looked at this morning. Thank you for putting that on the screen. So you see, Baptists say that we are a part of a regenerate church. Maybe you've heard that term before, regenerate. It means we've been born again. Just like Jesus told Nicodemus, John 3, you must be born again, speaking of a spiritual rebirth. We are a part of a regenerate church. That's why we baptize believers after they've accepted Christ to describe, I'm dying to my old way of living. I'm being raised up to a new life with him. Christ has died and has washed away my sin. And I rise up celebrating my forgiveness and my renewal. One day when I die, that's not the end of the story. Just as Christ died and God raised him back to life, so one day when I die, I will be raised back with a bodily resurrection and I will live with him forever. So Baptists have, have historically said we have a regenerate church, a born-again church that includes believers' baptism. And what that means is that we are a part of the family of faith. We are a part of the church, big C. We are part of the church universal. But Baptists have also said that we willingly and voluntarily belong to each other as a part of a gathered church. You know, there's something deep within the human spirit that does not want to live, we don't want to live by ourselves. Now, now you may be an introvert and you may really value the time alone that you have, and, th and there's nothing wrong with that. But most people, even if you're an introvert, you want to see people every once in a while. There's something in the human spirit that cries out for community. We cry out for community, for relationships, for support, for encouragement, for belonging. And so part of what Baptists have said is that God calls us together and we belong to each other. The early English Baptists, you know, Baptists came out of 17th century England. 
The early English Baptists often spoke of being in communion or in covenant with each other. If you read the Oakmont Church Covenant, it begins with these words. Listen to the first sentence. Since God has called us into covenant with him. We don't do the calling, God does. Since God has called us into covenant with him and he has gathered us for his purposes. Even our own church covenant in the first sentence has the word covenant. So you see, when we connect together in a local church, we affirm that God has called us to this place to serve him for the good of the world and the good of our community. We affirm that God has called us to this place to worship together. We affirm that God has called us to this place to be his disciples, to grow together in our faith. And we affirm that God has called us together to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that he's called us to embrace his way and his truth and his life. But as I've already told you, some things are shifting. Things have been shifting and things continue to shift, not just for Baptists, but in the life of faith and in the church. So I want us to end this morning by thinking for a moment, what are some opportunities? And what are some challenges for us to rethink church for the 21st century? So I want to put some things on the screen to and really invite you to think with me because I don't have all of the answers, but at least we can begin the conversation this morning. First of all, I think we've got to do some things if we're going to rethink church for the 21st century, to deepen belonging and community and discipleship. Now, when we had our deacon community conversations back in January, in which all of you were invited on a Wednesday or a Sunday night to come and weigh in on how you sense God was leading us to move forward in the future, there were two pretty significant themes that jumped out. One was, how do we deepen belonging and community? And a second one was, how do we make disciples? How do we trans people, transform people into faithful disciples of Jesus? Now, we Baptists have always called this membership. Membership has wrapped up all of these things about belonging and being in community and following Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, today, people are reluctant to belong to anything. They don't like membership. They don't want to join the PTA. They don't want to join the civic club in our communities. They're not joining churches like they once did. So how do we rethink that? So I want to put a couple of questions on the screen. First of all, in what ways can connecting with or leaving a church become a matter of prayer and spiritual discernment? How do we come to a church and connect with a church and base it on God's calling for our life? And how do we even leave a church and do so based on God's calling for our lives? If you pull me aside and you ask me the question, Pastor Greg, why are you here at Oakmont? Let, let me tell you the answers that I think you don't want to hear. You don't want to hear from me, well, I really think Greenville's a neat town to live in. That's why I'm here. Or I love our sanctuary and I love preaching and I just think this is a beautiful place to have worship, so that's why I'm here. Or I'm here because we have really nice people 
and it's fun to just be with the people of Oakmont. Now, now those actually are not bad reasons, but the ultimate reason that I think you want to hear from me, if you pull me aside and you say, why are you here at Oakmont all these years? I think the reason you want to hear is, I'm your pastor and I'm here because God has called me to this place. You would never call a pastor or staff person to this church unless they could look you in the eye from the get-go and say, yes, I believe God's called me to serve here. Now, my question back to you merely is, why shouldn't the same standard that you apply to me apply to you? If I pull you aside and say, why are you here at Oakmont? To me, you should be able to look me in the eye and say, I'm here because God has called me to this place. And that's what our church covenant reads that I just read to you a minute ago. Since God has called us into covenant with him and has gathered us for his purposes. So we've got to do some things to help people to understand that you become a part of a church family because God's called you to serve and to worship and to be his disciples. And by the same token, you don't leave. You don't leave unless God has called you to leave a local church. Second thing, how do we move Christians from believers to disciples? You know, not every Christian is a disciple. Did you know that? There are a lot of people who are believers in Jesus. They have asked Jesus to be his or her Lord and Savior, uh, Savior. but they've not, asked, not necessarily asked Jesus to be their Lord. They, they like the fact that Jesus saves us from our sin, and one day we have that promise of eternal life with him. But when you make Jesus the Lord, when you make him the coach, when you make him the leader, when you make him the guide, when you make him the teacher, then what you're saying is, I'm going to be under sitting at Jesus' feet, and I'm going to do everything I can to learn to live my life as he did. See, see I remember that, that old story of the university professor, and he was talking with someone one day, and he said, I think you know so-and-so. He was a student in your class at one time, and the professor thought for a moment, and he said, well, he may have sat in my class, but he was never a student of mine. And just because you're sitting in the pew doesn't mean that you're a student of Jesus. So how do we move people from just believers making Jesus his Savior and making Jesus Lord? making them disciples. And finally, what would an annual recommitment to be in community and covenant with each other look like, just like ancient Israel had to renew their covenant with God and each other? If Greg Rogers is starting tomorrow Rogers Baptist Church, you know what's going to happen? Every year, all of the folks who are in community and in communion with Rogers Baptist Church are going to have to show up at a worship service and they're going to have to stand up and they're going to have to say, we belong to Jesus and we belong to each other and renew it every year. Because being a part of a church family ought to count for something. You ought to have to renew, I think, just like ancient Israel did. We ought to renew our covenant that we belong to each other and to Jesus. 
I think, on an annual basis. Well, that's one thing. Number two, I got a second thing here. I think if we're going to rethink church for the 21st century, we've got to think about how we shift congregational decision-making from majority rules by voting to discerning the mind of Christ. For too long, the Baptist churches, like my little Baptist church that I grew up in, have focused too much on Robert's Rules of Order and Parliamentary Procedure, and all in favor say aye, and all opposed no, and I win and you lose. Or you win, and I lose. And that's not what Baptist church freedom is about. As Walter Sheridan said, it's about being under the lordship of Christ. So when we enter this room or any room to make important decisions, we enter the room prayerfully. It's not a political con convention. It's a prayer meeting where we show up to discern what is God doing in our midst and how do we pay attention to it so we can join him in what he's doing. It's not our church, it's his church. So we better be making some decisions that reflect the heart and the spirit of Jesus and the mind of Christ. And one last thing, and, and I think I've got that up there. Finally, reimagine what church looks like. I think we've got to reimagine what church looks like. I want to put a couple of things up here. Uh, Daniel Heron and the Robluxian Christians. You ever heard of Daniel Heron and the Robluxian Christians? Let me tell you about Daniel Heron. He's now 18 years old. He lives in Tacoma, Washington. Like many high school students, I think he's just graduated, but like many high school students, he was involved in a lot of clubs and activities at his church, at his school, and in his community. Seven years ago, now I want you to think about this with me. Seven years ago, Daniel Heron, at the age of 11, I almost laugh when I think about this. I'm not laughing because I'm making fun of him. I'm laughing because I can't believe this kid did this. Seven years ago at age 11, he became the founder and the pastor. How about that? Of an online church community called the Robluxian Christians, a virtual church that has attracted more than 4,500 teenagers around our country and around our world. They meet for prayer and worship every Sunday at 5 p.m. and every Thursday at 7 p.m. and at other times during the week online. They have a leadership team of 15 teenagers. They do ministry in their local communities wherever they live. And I would just ask you this simple question. How can we reimagine together what church looks like? Technologically and in other ways at other times? Do you realize that one out of three Americans work on Sunday? 33% of Americans work on Sunday. How can they show up at 9.40 or 11 o'clock if they're worship, if they're working? By the way, you do know why churches have always worshipped at 11 o'clock on Sunday, don't you? It's because of the farmers. We lived in an agricultural agrarian society. By the time the farmers got up, 
and milked the cows and slopped the hogs and fed the chickens and got a shower and got dressed and got in the wagon or on the horse and or walked four miles to their church. It was 11 o'clock. It was about as soon as they could get there for worship. When are we going to wake up, not just Oakmont, but the Christian community, and say maybe we need to think about other times when people can worship God given the fact that 33% of Americans work on Sunday? So I think the next bullet says something about Oakmont in the future. What are we going to do to make sure that God's message gets heard, not only online, but in other places, at other times, not because it's convenient for us, but because life is life, and we've got to wake up and be the church for the 21st century. Well, folks, I've only joined two churches in my entire life. Creedmoor Road Baptist Church in Raleigh, my little home rural church that now sits on the four-lane highway two miles from Crabtree Valley Mall. When I was growing up, it was out in the country. And Oakmont Baptist Church in Greenville. This morning, I want to stand and I want to affirm before you that I belong to and I love Jesus. And I want to stand and I want to affirm to you this morning that I love and I belong to you. 